going to continue in Ephesians. Chapter 1. I'm going to read this section again in, uh, in my Bible with the headings that someone just made up. Verse 14 is the end of this made-up section. Um, We're going to be in verses 11 through 14 today, but I'm going to read uh, 3 through 14, which is everywhere we've been so far. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then this is where we're going to be today, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So our approach today is going to be a little bit different. As we worked through verses 3 through 10, I sort of uh, picked out phrases and I would examine a phrase and then we would um, work through every, everywhere else in scripture where we could understand what Paul was talking about there. And there were times where I would spend a couple weeks on a single verse. Here we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to try to knock out all of 11 through 14 today. Um, That's because Paul's really saying one thing, I think, in verses 11 through 14. Before we get into it, we're going to review something I talked about last week. And that is this idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is its own guide for interpretation. Scripture is going to teach you how to read it. And the way you learn from Scripture how to read Scripture is by reading Scripture. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture is the highest authority in all things, right? It's the word of God. God said it. And it equips us completely. And now there's four things there in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that Paul tells us that scripture is good for. Teaching, correction, uh, rebuke, and training in righteousness. Um, and those four things sort of cover everything you need to know at least in terms of spiritual matters. Um, Scripture is not a textbook. It's not going to you know, teach you how to do math. But 
when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to teaching us about Christ, equipping us to live in fellowship with the saints, teaching us to lead our families, Scripture is complete and it equips us for those things. It teaches us. This means that it, in a positive sense, tells us what to believe. Right? Scripture tells you these are the things you need to know. It corrects us. Tells us what not to believe, right? These are the things that are wrong. These are the errors, the heresies that are in the world today. It also trains us, right? It teaches us these are the things that you need to do, right? I've told you what you need to know, and here's what you need to do about it. Scripture is complete in that sense. And it rebukes. It tells us that was wrong, Shouldn't have done that, right? Tells us these things, these positive, negative perspectives, these things you ought to believe, these things you ought to do. And one of those is that Scripture equips us to read it. The more we read it, the more we want to read it, the more we are able to read it, the more we are able to understand it. So that's what we're going to do today. Scripture is going to interpret Scripture for us. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament today because Paul's going to mention something here in verse 11 um, that is really referencing the Old Testament. In particular, in verse 11, he says, In him we... So we're going to stop there because we're going to finish out by talking about the inheritance that we have obtained. But first, Paul says, In him we... Now, you might be tempted to read verse 11 here and think, okay, we, the church, us, the people of God. That's not what Paul's talking about. But it's not clear until you get to verse 13 that the scope of this we is actually pretty narrow in verse 11. In him, we, Paul refers to himself and he refers to the Jews. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him. And then in verse 13, we see that the scope of verse 11 is much more narrow. He says, in him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So because Paul here in verse 11 is talking about himself and the Jews... We need to talk about Israel. Now, one of the themes that we've seen over and over and over again here in Ephesians 1 is God's election, right? God's predestination of his people according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will, according to his wisdom and insight. And so to understand what Paul's talking about here when he talks about Israel, we are going to examine God's election in the Old Testament. He's speaking specifically of the saints among the nation of Israel when he says, in him we. In particular, we can look at the election of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the fathers of the nation of Israel. Each of these men represents types a, a type, a microcosmic representation of God's election. 
Each of these represents, shows us a picture of God's election of the nation of Israel. And in turn, these things, God's election of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's election of the nation of Israel, shows us the reality of the gospel. And God's election of his people from every nation. Right? That was the promise of Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. So let's talk about Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of all Israel. To understand who Abraham was, actually we can go to Joshua, one of these histories, they mention something about Abraham. And then we're going to jump into uh, Genesis chapter 11 and 12. Um, in Joshua 24, 2, Joshua says to all the people, This says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So from that mention in Joshua and you know, some of the things that we know about the history of the ancient Near East, we conclude that Abraham, at least his father, They worshipped the moon. They were pagans. They had no eyes to see. They had no ears to hear. Until we get to chapter 12. Right, in Genesis 11, we've got sort of the, uh, at the end of chapter 10, you've got the genealogy of Noah after uh, the ark is settled. Chapter 11, we've got the Tower of Babel and the descendants of Shem. And then we arrive at the end of chapter 11 to Abram. And then in verse 12, with absolutely zero context, God speaks. Right? We've just got, you know, it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since the last time God had anything to say to his people. Right? Since Noah, you've got the descendants of Noah. And then we get to chapter 12. Now the Lord God said to Abraham... Well, to Abram. He's not Abraham yet. The Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what has Abram done? Nothing. What has he done to earn God's favor? Nothing. And yet, God speaks, gives him this promise. Why? Paul would tell us in Ephesians 1, so that the purpose of God might stand. Paul would tell us that this is the wisdom and insight of God. This is the plan of God. Again, in Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appears to Abram and says, To your offspring I will give this land. In chapter 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you will see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Right, we keep seeing these promises. Genesis 15, 
The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And then in Genesis 15, 6, we see something that Brother Mike read for us today out of Romans 4. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. All right, so here in the beginning of Genesis, we just see the Lord speaking to Abraham with all these promises, right? And when God tells Abraham to do something outrageous, Abraham just does it. He trusts, he believes in God. And that is what is counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's what Brother Mike read for us from Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in Genesis 16, Abraham takes matters into his own hands, right? He does not trust God, right? God has said, I will make you the father of many nations. And he has said it many times. And Abraham says, I'm really, really old. And my wife is really, really old. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go unto my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. This was your idea. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. All right, so they hatched this scheme to have kids according to their own plan. And Hagar bore Abram a son. His name was Ishmael. And then finally in Genesis 17, we see God's purpose of election in the promise of Isaac. Genesis 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. So here we see the first of these 
choices that God makes. God chooses Isaac over Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 21, Isaac is born. And then in Genesis chapter 22, we see this interesting um, episode where the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. He's commanded to take Isaac onto the mountain and sacrifice him. I won't read this whole, uh, this whole passage, but I will make some observations here. Remember I said, when the Lord tells Abraham to do things that are outrageous, Abraham listens. But when Abraham is, you know, expected to trust that when God said, your wife will give you a son, he takes matters into his own hands. But here in Genesis 22, we see the great faith of Abraham. And we see the election of Isaac. And we relate this election of Isaac to the election of God's people. The command of God required that Abraham kill Isaac, did it not? But God provides a substitute in Isaac's place. And in the same way, the law of God and God's justice requires death. And God instead provides a substitute. Isaac is the chosen one of God, not Ishmael. And this ram is provided in the place of God's chosen one. Just as Christ is provided in the place of God's people. Isaac grows up. He has children of his own. Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Seems to run in the family. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her. That must have been alarming. She said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire to the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. They called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau was a man's man, right? Esau was the man that the father wants to see his boy grow up to be, right? Big, strong, he's a hunter, he brings home meat to eat. And Jacob stayed at home with his mom. Jacob was mama's boy. And yet, God's purpose of election stands in Jacob. We see this also in uh, the selection of David as the king, right? They didn't even bring David in from the field. 
to be evaluated for king. What we see here is God's election of Jacob. And in particular, turn to the prophet Malachi, very last book of the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. The prophet Malachi tells us something about Jacob and Esau, which Paul echoes in Romans chapter 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older, older will serve the younger. As it is written, and here Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In each of these instances, we see God's sovereignty in fulfilling his own purpose. Rather than some sort of convention, some sort of expectation being followed. Right? None of them earned God's favor. None of them were even particularly nice people. Except sometimes I feel bad for Ishmael, because he seems like the one who didn't really do anything wrong. Right? But that's the expectation that Paul is trying to knock down when we get to Romans 9, right? We have these expectations of what we think that God ought to be doing. We have these expectations of how we think God ought to go about saving people. We come up with these schemes. And that's the objection that Paul addresses in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Why does he still find fault? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make with one lump a vessel for honorable use and with another lump a vessel for dishonorable use. None of these people earned God's favor. And as we read in Romans 4, it was their faith that was counted to them as righteousness. Not of works, but of God. And this is the mystery of the gospel to the Jews. Right? We talked about this here in Ephesians. Right? This was the mystery. This is what the Jews missed when Jesus showed up. Right? This is the misaligned expectations that Israel had 
in the incarnation of Christ. They expected Jesus to come. And they expected him to come with a sword ready to strike down Rome. Ready to strike down their oppressors. To kill Herod, to kill Caesar, to sit on the throne of Israel. And so when Jesus showed up as a dirty, ugly man from Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. They said, that's not him. That's not my king. And that was the mystery of the gospel to the Jews. So when the Pharisees claimed that Abraham was their father, what were they saying? We are Isaac. We are not Ishmael. We are Jacob, not Esau. We are the chosen sons of God. Because Abraham is our father. And they were right. Abraham was their father. They were descended from Abraham. Who else was descended from Abraham? Esau and Ishmael. Esau was Abraham's son. Ishmael was Abraham's son. And just as Paul tells us in Romans 9, it is not the children of the flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promises. The Pharisees thought that they were Isaac and Jacob, the chosen sons of Abraham. And they thought that they were so because of their good works, their works of the law. But they were not the chosen sons. They were Ishmael and Esau. The children of Abraham, according to the promise, are Isaac and Jacob. And they are those who are born according to the Spirit. Which we learn here in Ephesians 1, which Jesus tells us throughout the Gospels. Includes the Gentiles, right? The people of God from every nation. And so in 111... <clears throat> Of Ephesians. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Paul is talking about those children of Israel who are children of the promise. Those children of Israel who are born of the Spirit. So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. He's making a division in Israel right here. There are those who are the children of Abraham according to the promise and those who are the children of Abraham according to the flesh. The ones who are children according to the promise are the ones who have hoped in Christ. Right? And this is the whole message of the epistle to the Hebrews, right? Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, for but the law has but a shadow 
of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Right? The Pharisees didn't get that. Right? The Pharisees thought they were the good things to come. Right? Because they followed the law. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So these sacrifices of the Old Testament are not in themselves effectual. Right? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it was that the faith of the observer of the law was what was counted to them as righteousness. God is not pleased in the blood of goats. God is not pleased in your sinner's prayer. God is not pleased in your baptism, in your church membership, in your relation to someone who gave a bunch of money to the church in 1967. Right? These are all things that I have heard people reference when I ask them. You know, how do you know that you are saved? Some years ago, Brother Jesse and I were out knocking on doors to teach the gospel to anyone who would make the mistake of answering the door. And Jesse asked one lady, you know, how do you know that you're saved? She just said, I'm a member of this church. Right? These are the schemes that people come up with. Right? What is your hope in? I would pray that your hope is in the gospel, the work of Christ. How do you know that you are saved? Because Christ is faithful. How do you know you are saved? Because it pleased God to satisfy his wrath against me in the death of his son. How do you know that you are saved? Because Christ was raised for my resurrection. How do you know that you are saved? Because the promises of God are true. And in him, you also. Now Paul speaks to us. Speaks to the Ephesians. In him, you also. Back to Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in the same way that the saints of Israel have hoped in Christ, 
you also now hope in Christ. That's the mystery of the gospel. That salvation hasn't changed. It's been the same from Adam to today to when Christ returns. Your father, Adam, was saved because he hoped in Christ. Abraham was saved because he had faith in the promises of God. Jacob was saved because the father was pleased to pour out his wrath on Christ. And we can know that we are saved because we have hope in Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel that the Jews didn't get. Now, back in verse 11, Paul talks about an inheritance. And we should not make the mistake of thinking that this inheritance is salvation. Right? It's an easy mistake to make. You read this, we have obtained an inheritance, we have obtained salvation. It's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about something else. He's talking about something far off. He's talking about something eschatological. There's your vocabulary word, eschatology, in times. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the uh, angel appears to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So remember, this inheritance that is promised to us is not salvation. Right? This is something that comes after salvation. This is something that is promised to us in the future. And to understand it, we need to understand the inheritance of Christ. We're going to read Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of Christ and his inheritance. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell them of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Christ is slated to inherit the nations of the earth. When Christ returns... He will be set as the king over all the nations, and he will judge them with a rod of iron. That's what we see in Revelation 19. We also see in John 17, yes, I am going to John 17 every week for the rest of forever. 
You should know what we're going to talk about in John 17 by now. I really think I have talked about it every week, haven't I? John 17, Christ speaks about the glory that he had before. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so Christ, as King, is set to inherit glory. That is the inheritance of Christ as King. The nations and glory. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Romans 8, 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right, remember when we talked about adoption? Right, by what authority do we claim to be sons of God? Is it because we are children of Abraham, as the Pharisees claimed? No. Is it because we have followed the law, as the Pharisees claimed? No. We claim to be children of God on account of the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ, and by that we lay legal claim to sonship of the Father. Right, but Christ is the king. And if we are the bride of the king, that means we get everything the king gets, right? We are heirs with Christ. We are to be glorified in Christ. We are to inherit the nations with Christ. Because he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And finally, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right? Same thing we read in Romans 8.16 there. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 1.13 We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So all of this that we have said about God's sovereignty, all of this that we have said about his wisdom and insight, about the purpose of his will, all of this is given for our assurance. All of this is given for our hope. And in all of this, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit seals us with Christ. So those of you who are in Christ have confidence that we will one day share with Christ in his inheritance. The Spirit of God testifies to our hearts and to our consciences to give us assurance in these promises gives us hope, gives us confidence to do those outrageous things, right? Those things that Abraham was told to do. And it was counted to him as righteousness. 
we heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation, and we believed in him. And if you have believed in him, then you are now sealed by the Holy Spirit. We can have confidence in these promises. Because our salvation was not because of what we did. We didn't have to earn it. And because we didn't have to earn it, we couldn't earn it, it's not up to us to keep it. Right? That's what sealed means. Right? We are sealed by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God testifies to our hearts. Let's pray and then we're going to take the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you that from your word we can see your sovereignty, your faithfulness, and your election from start to finish. We thank you that your spirit testifies to our hearts to give us hope, to give us peace, and to give us assurance that you are faithful to fulfill your promises. And Lord, as we take of this small meal, grow our faith, strengthen our faith, give us hope in the body of Christ, give us hope in the blood of Christ. We thank you and we praise you and pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.